Narhulan Holhubek. 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 That's it. Thanks so much. I appreciate coming through to, to, to talk a little bit about birth and so on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So just the background, obviously, we met a few weeks ago mm-hmm. up in Feldruf, mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, up the West Coast. Totally. And uh, in a very small little coffee shop on a deserted little gravel road. And um, you were probably one of the only, if not the only person working in this whole area probably <laughs> <laughs> well working hard at least um so obviously um you know you are from the uk yeah so you are here for for you've been here for just over two months um uh, studying birds mm-hmm. which we'll get to shortly um just to quickly because we didn't get the time now to speak beforehand um your last few days in cape town yes yeah, so what did you get to do oh my god it's uh it's just like amazing city but uh, i'm uh, it's kind of shame that i only i can only afford a week in here otherwise i would love to do a lot more things but uh, I I've, I went up to Table Mountain, of course, yeah. uh, using the cable car to save some time, of course, and overview the city. And then uh, I was planning to, you know, uh, see the Cape Point and that part of the country, but apparently it's not like the top of the tourist season, so the group uh, tour wasn't taking place in the end. Sure. So I instead I went to the you know botanical garden, which is amazing as well. Yes, of course. Oh my yeah. god, it's just like I I thought it was uh, you know because uh, I'm not really a plant guy. I see. But I went there eventually, and it's really surpri- totally surprised me. Yeah. Did you did you do the forest as well, or did you only go into the the, the gardens? Um, I took a little bit of a hike in the yeah. forest as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, mostly for watching some birds, but of course I, I also seen some really really great species that yeah, I haven't sure. seen in Veldrift yet. What type of birds did you manage to find in the forest? Uh, it's mostly like f- uh, uh, white eyes and some of the sunbirds, and also uh, spotted eagle. Really? Owl. Yeah, yeah. I've seen one, only one. It's really yeah. it's a good spot for me. <laughs> did you did you manage to find or see or uh, experience the eagles up in the west coast? The one the the, the pair of eagles that I that I mentioned. Ah um, uh, no, it's not? a pity. I haven't. Uh, I didn't see them because mm. uh, uh, I was too focused on the uh, salt pen area, so I sure. didn't really explore the uh, rest of the area. Yeah. Yeah, but well, anyway, so uh, actually, I think um, Table Mountain mm-hmm. um, has got, um, I think it was five days ago or so, um, celebrated, or the cable car celebrated the 92nd birthday. So I think oh, yeah. for the, lo- so like, I think, what's it, 90, yeah, 92 years ago, I think within uh, these 92 years, they've managed to get almost 30 million tourists up the mountain, which is incredible. You know, uh, but anyway, so we were speaking about um, mm-hmm. the hiking trails up to to Table Mountain. Mm-hmm. So um, did you did you do the cable car back down again as well? Yeah, just because I, I I had this meeting in the middle of the day, so I had to make it. Like I, I went up first thing in the morning and yeah. I came, came back down uh, in, the, in the midday. Was it busy though? Uh, no, actually, when I when I got there, I was pretty much the first person. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I heard the the driver of the cable car says usually they takes like 60 people yeah, yeah. in a cable car but we were only five of us i see going up was so it's i mean the whole experience was, was amazing there was actually have you ever watched those resident evil movies um ah uh, like yes like f- first two i think yeah, yeah. Remember, it was yeah. quite old movies yeah but there was actually one that i've watched recently i think it was the third one or the mm-hmm. last one whatever mm-hmm. whenever that was shot mm-hmm. but the movie actually starts in cape town and then there's these bunch of tourists in the cable car going up to a table mountain and then inside the cable car there's some infected zombies person and then he, and then he bites or kills everyone in the cable car and then the the, the shot is kind of the the guy manning the tower at uh-huh. the top like um, he's kind of reading the newspaper and then the cable car comes in and it stops and the doors open and then no one gets out of the cable car and then he like looks up and there's like blood and finger marks on the mo- windows right and then when he peeps in then this zombie thing jumps out and you now know. that you said it i have to review the movie <laughs> 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 totally honest. like I, lo- I love this kind of feeling like you, you go to a city and uh, you watch a relevant movie that yeah. takes place in here and you know you have this kind of contrast you know but you know uh, i had this conversation with someone in this week um cape town is uh, so the western cape is actually mm. known for for the wine farms and i mm-hmm. think one of the biggest exports for the Western Cape is actually, or that contributes to our uh-huh. GD, uh, GDP or whatever, is movies, uh, films. Oh, yeah. So the amount yeah. of films being shot in Cape Town is, is substantial. I mean, Safe House, uh, we spoke about Blade Runner the other uh-huh. day where uh-huh. Uh-huh. you can see Table Mountain and Robben Island and they keep running up and down waterfront in the road behind us here. Right. So um, there's so many movies. And then the last Vin Diesel movie, Bloodshot or something, is shot here as well. So there's so much movies being shot here. But yeah, it is fun. Actually, no, it's not fun because as soon as I pick up on uh, anyone, you know, or any movie uh-huh. where I realize it's shot in Cape Town, 
I focus so much into the background to try ah. and figure out when <laughs> uh, when South Africa gets shot. You know, I, I had the same feeling when I was, when I visit uh, Krakow in Poland. Yeah, yeah. Because of the movie uh, Schindler's List, of yeah. course, I was like really like that part of the history. Sure. So yeah, after I visit the city, I, I review the movie, of course. But as, as you said, I was too focused on you know which of the street was this scene taken. Yeah. You know, I totally lost track of uh, what is happening in the movie. Exactly. So it's yeah. yeah. But yeah. Again, there's so much there's so much to do in to see in Cape Town that you know obviously um, you would need a substantial amount of time to be able oh, to you definitely. know and then you've got you know if you go beyond Cape Town you've got the Garden Route and then you've got the Transkei which is beautiful and then you've yeah. got the Blade Canyon right up in the north uh, Lesotho is there Swaziland or actually mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure what the new name is for Swaziland I can't remember but in uh, nonetheless there's so much beauty yeah. you know. Uh, that it'll take you forever to be able to. Totally feel so you'll have to come back. Oh, know, totally, because uh, I, I work really hard to be uh, to be honest. So uh, you know, to establish a good population sure. uh, research site over there in in Feldref. So you know, next year we can come back with more people. Yeah. To uh, like uh, broaden our research area and also establish a long term study over there. Sure. So so to to go into the studies of what you're exactly doing, mm-hmm. just give me a, again a breakdown of uh, your reason for visiting the West, uh, the West Coast, specifically Feldriff, and mm-hmm. uh, you know what you've been busy with for the last two months. Yeah, so uh, our group is uh, based in University of Bath, but my supervisor, he's also running a global shorebird project, uh, mainly focusing on the, uh, like the breeding system and uh, evolution of uh, behavior in shorebirds. So, you know, these kind of shorebirds are a group of birds called plovers. So they have... Uh, different, uh, like many populations all across uh, the globe, except for Antarctica. So uh, there are several uh, endemic species in in, 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 um, in South Africa, for example, kitlitz plovers, uh, chestnut banded, which is a threatened species in, in recent years because their population just declined crazy. For what, for what reason? Uh, I think it's habitat loss mostly. So Due to? Um, <coughs> like human, uh, dis- uh, like okay. urbanization, that kind of thing. Because like they specifically breeding in those uh, like salt pans or, yeah. or, or alkali lakes, that kind of area. So, uh, so like their choice for habitat is quite limited. I see. And um, there must be other reasons, but we're just trying to know any, uh, something about these species because basically nothing has been done sure. on chestnut band plovers. And the re- so far, it's my favorite plover. Yeah, but isn't it also true that Faldorf or the west mm-hmm. west coast or the Western Cape is also home to the the most vari- the biggest variety of plovers in the world? Or uh, the biggest, um, uh, what do you call them as a collective? Um, yeah, I'm, variety? I'm I not know. really entirely sure about that, but, uh, but f- from my personal experience, it's definitely a group of area, uh, like a like part of the world that yeah. has most uh, diverse group of plovers so yeah, far. Yeah, diverse, yeah. Yeah, yeah because like in, in here, I've seen like m- three major plover species, like kitlets, chestnut banded, and uh, uh, three banded, but also I've seen like common ring plovers, and uh, oof, what else? And some other like lapwings. Is there also yeah. a group of shorebirds? So I'm mean, like within the same area, you can see so many different species. That yeah. that's crazy. I mean, that's that's, a, that's a, the best part of the field where you work with a bunch of uh, different species. Sure. And what uh, what you mentioned to me before was mm. uh, the fact that these b- little birds prefer to nest on the pans itself. Yes. Yes. So it's like ground nesting bird, and the, for some reason they don't really, uh, you know building their nest under the vegetation vegetated area. They would love to, I mean, they prefer to nest in the, in the open area, like the mud flat or the, you know, the dike along the salt pan. So I think, I think there's a, there's a reason behind this because, you know, uh, it's, it's about their uh, anti predation strategy. Mm. So these birds, they, they're, if you see their nest, their eggs can, can be really cryptic. Yeah. So even you walk past them, you, you can barely see them if you, if you don't look really carefully. And like like kitless plover, they bury their eggs. Yeah. So you know, it's a really cryptic in the wild. But also, you know, like when bird is sitting on the nest, uh, the bird has a great view to look at the predators from the sky. Sure. Like could be, you know, falcons or or like crows. A crows for eggs for yeah. mostly, but uh, they can just fly away really like really quickly. I see. So is there any is there any advantage to being so close to the the salt specifically uh, i think it's probably something to do with their diet so they kind of feed on those um, uh, microorganisms in in salt pan i see so but it's, it varies from place to place but uh, so far we found that in most plovers they prefer to breed in those like salt lake mm. or salt pan this kind of area i see do they do they, do the plovers migrate or they kind of stay sh- they kind of stay around it differs yeah some populations are migratory some populations are resident so 
like for example, this kitlets plover and chestnut banded plover they, here is nomadic. They, they, they just uh, mi- like during the short distance migration, uh, be, like according to the like local climate. I see. Yeah, if it's too dry, they just probably migrate a little bit further to the place where it's where mm. it's good rainfall. Yeah. Um, besides the 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 estuary, did you visit the plot, um, which is basically. It's like it's like a five minute drive from um, from Bokumlan. Mm-hmm. There's an area closer to where the nursery is. Um, there's a big open patch where which is kind of closed off for boating. Uh-huh. Uh, which it's quite shallow, uh-huh. and a lot of the pelicans and flamingos tend right. to move that way, especially in the summertime when mm-hmm. the river is quite busy, mm-hmm. um, because that area is kind of closed off. Um, it's quite a nice area to view from because mm-hmm. you are standing close to the water, but mm-hmm. it gives the birds kind of a sanctuary to kind of breed and do their thing in, in mm-hmm. peace. Mm-hmm. Did you manage to visit? There uh, no, unfortunately not. But mm. if you, it's now that you mentioned that, I mean, next year this is also another thing yeah. to do for yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. No, the re- and the other thing is is the reason why I'm asking of of the migration pattern is um, you obviously got to experience the amount of cormorants that. Um, oh yeah, that's crazy. That's oh an, it's God. incredible. Uh, that's so like thousands of them. I mean, migrating yes. from one spot to another. So there was actually uh, there's a couple that they kind of try to to try and find numbers for mm-hmm. the amount of cormorants that the felder f- kind of hosts, and according to them, it's between ninety and a hundred thousand of them. <gasps> Which is incredible because, like, if you've got to experience in the salt pans in the morning, yeah, you know when they when they leave for their daily activities, um, close to where I stay, you got this huge long beach, yeah. and in the mornings you can see thousands of them, yeah. you know, trailing behind each other, and, and f- some days, going from home and returning home uh, for these for these birds. You can find kilometers, yeah, yeah, of a of a, this line of birds, you know, just kind of tracing or trailing back home. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah I, I'm I, I'm lucky that I that I saw it the other day. Mm. I was visit that, that part of the beach uh, at the end of the day. Just I just uh, you know very lucky to see the whole, like like big group of uh, cormorants flying back mm. to the salt, you know, on the other other side of the bridge. Yeah, exactly. Because in the first place, I was thinking there might be some plover nest in that salt pan. Until I saw, you know, so many cormorants actually spending the night over there. So I was thinking, ah, the nest couldn't survive with that density of uh, birds standing on the on the dikes. So, so the the plover is kind of a very solitary bird in that in that sense. When it or it's a, when especially with nesting. Uh yes, it's a solitary because uh, I mean they 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 only accumulate or aggregate mm. uh, before the uh, migration take pl- takes place. But in um, in the case of uh, plover species here, I haven't really seen them. But I mean, there's something really interesting about chestnut as well. They breed here, but also I see a group of chestnut banded plover. They aggregate like like cormorants, but in smaller group yeah. or, or like like sandpipers. Uh, but kitlets, no, I don't think really? they really aggregate that much. But I'm just still trying to sort out why th- why that is. And the and the spoonbills. Spoonbills, I've only seen couple actually. Really? So yeah, it's like one or two breeding in that salt pan area. Yeah. But I haven't really seen because they actually they're quite popular actually around this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, just before you, mm-hmm. uh, when you come over the bridge and you turn the right, mm-hmm. um, on the right hand side you've got that ah, hotel, the yes, Rivera, yeah. the Rivera Hotel, and then mm-hmm. just after that there's a little bit of a uh, kind of a, a mud flaps, yeah. I guess, mm-hmm. uh, where they tend to spend quite a lot of time. And usually there's maybe maybe three, four, five pairs of them usually operating ah, in that area, right. Because um, obviously they're uh, uh, quite a beautiful bird too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I managed to take a really nice picture of uh, spoonbills as well. So. Yeah. So and also the other thing with the cormorants is uh, maybe you. C- I can't remember if it's uh, even a, a fact, but isn't it one of the few ocean or water birds that mm. doesn't have the nece- necessary oil mm. to be able to dry themselves off immediately? And that's the reason why you will find always find them kind of baking in the sun to try and uh, get the water off their feathers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert for cormorants, but uh, I think that's a thing that I heard as well. Mm. But you can you can just see them, you know, spreading their wings yeah, yeah. towards the sun. I mean, it's probably drying the um, the feather, but also, you know, it's kind of killing the parasites as I well. See. So for health reasons, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it, it's a good point. I don't know. Uh, I just need to look into that. <laughs> yeah, because obviously they do spend a lot of time in, well, close to water, in the water. Yeah. So um, you'll always find them... You know, some especially in the mornings or in the afternoons, you'll find them kind of you know facing the sun, yes, trying yes. to um, spread uh, the wings, spread the wings, and then yeah. cool off. Um, was this was this something that you 
when you started your studies, w w did you study something else, uh, or uh, different bird species or animal species, or did you go straight into the yeah. plover community or um, species itself? Yeah, actually, before I even started my PhD in, in the UK, uh, I was actually working on giant panda. Okay, yeah, so a little so bit, little uh, bit uh, bigger than a plover. Exactly, but it's, you know, the flagship of conservation. So uh, I always wanted to do something in, in conservation biology. So uh, in my master, I was in, in Beijing, and there was this uh, professor, he has been working on Panda for years, so applied for his uh, master, and I managed to uh, work for three years in a, one of these pan Panda conservation centers in China. But I mean, they're mostly like uh, captive populations, yeah. but I was thinking uh, I really would like to do something in, in, you know, more in the wild. And, sure. uh, and until like uh, at the end of 2015, I think, I met my supervi current supervisor uh, in China. He was giving a lecture and doing some field work over there. And I... I'm very lucky. That I was really lucky that he invited me to his field work in Tibet. So I joined him for uh, like a week of field work in Tibet, one of these uh, salt lake in China. Uh, and I, that, that was the first time I, I get to know about plovers, this group of shorebirds. And I found the, the field work is just exactly the thing that I would like to do. Yeah. And it's like middle of nowhere. It's, it's wild and uh, oh, just, just amazing. So that's why I applied for this... Uh, Shorebird research. I see. Based in the UK, yeah. And then, and then for regarding the the plovers that we've got up the west coast, um, how do they compare to the the ones that you? Is it also plovers that you've managed to find uh, in Tibet? Yes, it's a, a Kentish plover and lesser sand plover. Okay. So uh, it's also like close relatives, but they are different. Bigger uh, in size, or kind of uh, all of them kind of the same? Uh, actually, the Kentish plover in Tibet looks a little bit like chestnut bandit but not entirely the same. But they, even in terms of size or, or, or the plumage, they're similar. Yeah. But kitlets and uh, lesser sand plover, they are very different. It's, you can, like, you can lo notice it like immediately. I see. But in terms of size, uh, lesser sand plover, a little, little bit uh, bigger than, than kitlets uh, yeah. or chestnut bandit or kintish plover. I see. And the, and the, uh, the pandas that you were talking of... Um, <laughs> What is the, because I mean, that's the one thing that as a, as a South African, as an, an, as an African, <laughs> you don't see in our continent. Yeah. Um, what is the, 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 the stats regarding um, captive and, and um, non-captive mm. pandas? I mean, what is the status of, the, um, of pandas these days? Yeah, uh, I mean, because of course, it's a, a man-breeding like breeding program. Like, uh, breeding program is taking place every year. And uh, I think now currently that the number of uh, captive pandas are reaching up to 700, 800, something like that. I'm not, no, I'm not sure, but yeah. it's like roughly that. It's a ballpark figure. And but those wild populations, I think it's up to, uh, I mean, close to 2,000. Oh. I, I don't have the like, exact numbers, but yeah. it's a, it, the good thing is like they're increasing. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the problem I am thinking at the moment is like if uh, these populations are self-sustainable. So, you know, a lot of things are actually, like, a lot of breeding is taking place with the human intervention, like uh, artificial insemination kind of thing. But I don't really have the up-to-date data, like, mm. how th how they're breeding in the wild. I see. But, I mean, the Chinese government has, has done a lot to uh, reestablish their uh, habitat and doing all these conservation efforts. So, apparently, it's, 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 it's uh, improving, and the panda recently has been removed from the red list oh, on IOC, and so they are not those, like, uh, you know, uh, endangered species. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, uh, they have to be, like, self-sustainable in That's terms right. of breeding until they are. You and, then, and then when they breed, how, what's what's the average um, amount of cups that they, they... Usually it's a... I mean, in, in, in a captive environment, they're usually uh, born with two, like uh, twins, like I two see. of them. But in the wild, like, uh, usually only one can survive. Mm. So, yeah, but the, in, in a panda research center, you just see this, uh, all like, twins. But, but you know, the mother can, can never take care of them, uh, both of them at the sure. same time. So the you know the the keeper panda keeper I see. had to the swap them. Comes in? Yeah, they they have to swap mm. like uh, a few weeks with this cub and a few weeks with other cub, just do this kind of alternation. Interesting. <laughs> and in the wild, are they similar to to sharks? Because obviously in the wild you don't have mm -hmm. a, a keeper or a, yeah. take, a caretaker. Mm. Are they similar to sharks in the in the sense where um, there's kind of rivalry between siblings? I mean, with sharks, I think it happens internally already. Mm -hmm. You know, where the bigger, stronger one. Um, mm -hmm. um, baby will usually eat the, the other one or mm -hmm. the embryo of the other one and then continue to grow. Is there any type of um, 
uh, rivalry with with pandas when it when it came in the wild when it comes there to might be i mean i'm not sure but there might be because uh, like what we saw in the wild back in the you know 2015 is more like you know you only, usually only one uh, uh, cub survive no matter it's for because of the food or, or or health or whatever reason uh, and maybe it's you know the, the lactation of um, mothers also Sure. Quite limited, so I see. there are a lot of reasons behind it. But, but I mean, I don't have like direct evidence to show that yeah. if uh, there's this kind of uh, rivalry between uh, the cubs. Is there, uh, in that part of the world, is there, um, uh, is it's protected from hunting? Ah, uh, yes, totally, yeah. yeah completely. T- completely. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. The reason I'm asking is I was listening to something the mm-hmm. other day where they were talking about bears. Mm-hmm. And that's again something where that we yeah. don't have any idea of. But um, I think it was in North America where they've got brown bears and black bears and mm-hmm. grizzlies and whatever. And um, it was interesting because obviously uh, myself not being a hunter mm-hmm. and not being kind of interested in, I mean, the opposite spectrum of things, you know, looking, mm-hmm. protecting. Um, but yet it was interesting to, to learn that obviously like mountain lion hunting, um, there's obviously bear hunting, which mm-hmm. is not a secret, but um, it's just interesting how we started to portray different animals and then how we kind of separate them into different little categories so it's mm-hmm. fine for us to you know slaughter a sheep or a goat for food mm-hmm. it's fine to go and kill an antelope and slaughter that for the meat mm-hmm. but then as soon as we it, go, it gets to a mountain lion or a bear mm-hmm. how we perceive these animals are cute and cuddly and friendly mm-hmm. um and you know and i think a lot of people you know, would not like the idea of bears being hunted. And mm-hmm. obviously pandas are even worse because they're mm-hmm. even more furry and cuddly yeah. and cute. Yeah, totally. So um, it's just interesting how we, you know, society started to portray different animals because I know there's areas in, in the, the North North America where bears are an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they are kind of, the, the numbers are, because they don't have any predators and the numbers are increasing so much mm-hmm. that, you know, it's affecting the, the natural environment and the mm-hmm. ecosystem mm-hmm. Is, is starting to collapse. Mm-hmm. So obviously you have to put hunting in place. Mm-hmm. But someone like myself looking at someone killing a bear, it, it just feels to me, yeah, it I know. feels wrong. Totally, yeah, I understand. But it's uh, just part of the conservation management. Because, mm. uh, you know, uh, because of, like most of the issues is because, because of human activities. So, you know, nature has its own way to balance every component, like predators or prey. Mm. But because of the human activities, there's a lot of things, you know, that break the balance. That's why sometimes, you know, the conservation management has to be, ta- uh, you know, uh, taken. So, sure. I mean, unfortunately, that's just part of the, the whole uh, conservation management. Sure. Yeah. Um, we spoke about the bears. There's mm-hmm. another thing I wanted to ask you, another area that, um, I, um, that I was wondering that you visited, is the Faluran Flay. Mm-hmm. which is also up just from Feldriff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've got something like, I've actually um, I actually saved something regarding that. Um, they've got something like um, 400, um, 400 flamingos, mm-hmm. um, something like 20,000 different individual birds in the summer months, and then three globally near-threatened and eight nationally threatened birds. Oh, really? So it's an amazing area, but, um, and I think you probably could have heard it from the local community by now, but there's always mines and permits being put in place for for different um, companies to try and extract minerals yeah. or whatever from from um, from from the land. Uh-huh. So for uh it's about 35 minutes north of Aldorf. It's a beautiful area. It kind of mouths um, into the ocean when there's sufficient rain. But the last few years, because of the drought, that massive flay, I don't know what the what the size of it is and the, the amount of water that's left in it, but it's, it's, it's almost n- little to nothing. Um, but usually all the flamingos, from mm-hmm. a lot of the flamingos from Faldov kind of goes to, to Fulurenflay. And then in a good um, winter month, mm-hmm. You can stand from the from the top of the mountain and you can look uh, all the way up as the flay kind of snakes to, uh, mm-hmm. towards the west mm-hmm. or towards the east, and you can find see these uh, like hundreds of pink pelicans and flam- uh, flamingos uh, mm-hmm. kind of scattered all along. Oh, gosh. And now recently they wanted to. There's a permit in place for a tungsten f- um, mine, which, as far as I know, it's an open cast mine mm-hmm. with a lifespan of like 20 years or whatever. Um, but you know, tungsten being, uh, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a mineral, whatever it is, but it's used in uh, like bulb filaments. And, um, I think in military applications where you need to use something to pen because it's such a hard 
um, whatever um, mm -hmm. unit that used to and it's used in military applications to penetrate. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm assuming it's, it's used in missiles and rockets yeah. or whatever. So um, you know, I don't know. You know, in areas where you've been before, mm -hmm. if um, you know, when it comes to the bird life, especially like little birds, like the plovers and these mm -hmm. birds that's used the, the mud, fl uh, the the mud areas, and the the riverines uh, and all these areas. Um, when it comes to the little bit that you saw up the west coast, um, how does that compare to the state of natural habitat of mm. birds that you had to had the opportunity to study abroad? Yeah, I mean, uh, South Africa compared to all these places, I mean, I have to say, like, uh, according to my limited experience, it's still like the one of the best places really? uh, with the really nice uh, wildlife uh, ecological surroundings. But I mean, unfortunately, there's this trend that, uh, all, like, especially like birds like plovers, they're losing the habitat. It's 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 a global issue already. Just a matter of uh, how severe it is. For example, the the area that I visited before is like the east coast of China. Uh, it's a, there's a sh uh, peninsula over there. It's also a really important stopover. It's like because it's like a uh, it's the coast of the Yellow Sea between China and the Korea. But that area, like it's big, big mudflat area. That's yeah. that's a stopover for for zillions of. Uh, shorebirds flying from Australia to up to uh, Siberia. But these areas, because of, you know, economy, because of the density population, so the mudflats are shrinking really, really fast. So, I mean, in, in a past uh, decade or something, uh, people start to realize how important these stopovers are because it, it directly impact yeah. the survival of these uh, populations in, 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 uh, in Siberia because they stop over to store some fat, gain some food, and they keep uh, migrate to the, to the north. So if the stopover is destroyed, that means many birds could not really make it to uh, Siberia and then finish the breeding. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing we, 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 we just definitely have to protect their habitat to maintain a, a sustainable breeding for the populations. But in South Africa, uh, I mean, I, I, I've only been here for two months. Mm. My visit is still very limited, but according to... Uh, my several visits in this area, uh, you have the, like there is problem like that, but um, still, I mean, uh, it's it's a, a, a still at a low low scale. But how do you convince how do you convince anyone to to con to 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 protect something like a pullover? I mean, where do you even start? I mean, it's a, it's the same as because you just mentioned the migration. Mm -hmm. Now you know many of us forgot mm -hmm. that birds migrate. Yeah. And they f many of these species fly from South Africa all the way to the, the northern hemisphere mm -hmm. and then return back. Mm -hmm. You know, we tend to forget that. We f tend to forget the kind of the, the, you know, how the effort that birds go mm -hmm. uh, or the degree of effort that birds, uh, bees need to go through yeah. to collect honey or make honey, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, how do you start to, to try and convince anyone to look after and protect a little bird that, most people don't yeah. even uh, see or know of. Yeah, to be honest, like p birds like plover, they're so small, and uh, you know it, it's easily overlooked by people. So, but I mean, the one thing I I would usually do is like to talk to people, like uh, trying to explain them what, what what I'm doing. I mean, my f like my impact is very limited, so I'm just trying to influence the people around me to uh, you know start looking into or get to know about plovers and how they are like endangered or, or, or like having those hard life uh, to breed and tr trying to impact the people around me. Mm. Uh, but I mean, in, 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 a, in a greater scale, I think it's very important uh, that conservation education come into program. Sure. Like start from the kids, uh, from the school, and trying to put the, you know, the survival of those uh, migratory shorebirds or, or any other bird species, yeah. like how great the migration is. For example, it's the documentary I love the most is like the... Oh, I forgot the name, but you know, it's it's made by a French director. It's about the story of the migratory birds, something like that. Because mm -hmm. I watched it in Chinese version, so I don't I exactly know what is the uh, English name. But I it's see. like one of these great documentary about yeah. migratory birds. So you know, things like this, initiative like this, can be really helpful to influence at least like group of people. Yeah. To start like doing something for bird protection. But that's a human thing to kind of. Um, we always wait until until we are yeah. kind of. Uh, you know, See neck deep in the shit before we yeah. start to, to kind true. of um, act upon it. Yeah. And um, that's, the I think, the problem with many species. You know, when I was, um, I follow, a, a th there was a movie a few years ago with, um, what's the, it's the actor, the older actor that played in The Lighthouse. Um, 
Anyway, mm-hmm. so there was he made a movie that was shot in Tasmania, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a it followed the journey of this guy who was hired to kill the last Tasmanian devil, and because uh, I tend to yeah. find the hashtag, I follow the hashtag on Instagram, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, because obviously they're extinct, and you know, there's many pages that kind of have these, um, I don't know what they call it when they kind of. Um, take the skin and they build it up mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a full size um yeah like specimen or yeah yeah so uh, anyway so this movie was shot and it kind of followed this journey of this guy trying to kill the last uh, Tasmanian devil yeah that happens and even in, in South Africa you know we've got a few species um that um you know that that's now extinct um and then um, but that's another thing you know is you've got these i think they call it lazarus species mm-hmm. which is um and i think we still fi- tend to find a lot of them as well is where you have a species that was considered extinct mm-hmm. but then rediscovered years later yes you know? yes so i can't give you there is actually a, a breakdown of a, a quite a nice list of lazarus species that kind of was rediscovered mm-hmm. so you know that kind of gives you hope Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But I don't think you need to ne- necessarily go that far That's to true. Ex- get it to exactly. you know get an animal extinct, and then hope to you know find one mm-hmm. more in the wild. You know what I actually have? I actually uh, saved it because I wanted to. I don't know if you knew the story or the sound. I'm going to play it for you, but it's um, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing the word mm-hmm. of it right. But it's called the kawaii uu. I think kawaii uu. Okay, and um, it's a bird that was last heard and seen in nine. It was last seen in 1985, and I mm-hmm. think the last clip of it was shot in 1987. The 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 sound only. Is that the in Hawaii? Yes. Okay, I I know about that. It. Right. Yes. Yeah. Of course, so yeah. I actually want to play it again because yeah. it's, it's actually a beautiful sound. I think uh, it should go through. Yeah, I think I went through this case uh, in conservation course. Let's see. Yes. So I don't know if it's true, but. According to to the internet, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure if it's this clip or one of the other clips, but there is a clip of this little bird um, singing, because I think this is the male, singing to a female, mm-hmm. not knowing that he was the very last of his species left. So he was singing into, into the mm-hmm. open fucking uh, jungle, mm-hmm. not understanding that there was nothing, no one left for him to anymore, which is quite a... Quite a Horrible thought, actually. Oh, if that's if that's real, that's really horrible. Yeah, what, it's, what it's it's a very sad story, but oh. um, it was quite beautiful because um, I, I I actually read up on this bird uh, f- uh, two years ago or something. Yeah, and, um, like the global issues, like warming, is actually impacting those like uh, species in Hawaii because mm. you know some birds they have a specific range, a temperature range to right. breed. You know, imagine that the temperatures are rising, then, then 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 these birds have to migrate to the top of the higher ground yeah and that means their breeding ground is like shrinking so i mean i mean that's the same uh, that's the same as as coral yeah you know coral can only survive within a specific uh, temperature as well you know and a lot of times it's it could be you know 21 degrees until let's say i don't know let's say 31 or 29 degrees big difference and 20.5 you know is already an issue for for the exactly for for the polyps so um but it's the same um, regarding the, the the space that you said that you know some species need to move mm-hmm. higher up. It's the same as the gorillas, I think in um, yeah yeah Tanzania or yeah Zambia Zambia yes sorry you know they are all limited to the top of the mountain and then all around you've got the villages and whatever the business the tourism of it then that that takes you up. So it's yeah that's the one thing I guess that you know is quite oppressing when it comes to animals is the fact that we keep on expanding and yeah. keep on you know um adding to our um, environment but taking away from someone else's environment actually my 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 feeling my strongest feeling uh, after I visit the South Africa is like uh I mean maybe some people in South Africa they don't really appreciate what they're having around mm. them like the moment I landed in 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 Cape Town what I saw is like the I didn't see the really clear boundary between urban and the nature. Interesting. So that's one thing I uh, impact me the most yeah. because you can see those really amazing species in great numbers even in your garden. Yeah. So I was like you don't really see this in many countries to mm-hmm. be honest. At, at least uh, from the countries I've v- visited so far. So it, it it's a kind of uh, I I don't know what the word but it's kind of blessed that sure. you can you can enjoy 
this kind of beauty of nature, like r- living really close next to you. Yeah, sometimes too close. It's the we had a problem a few years ago in the southern suburbs, so mm-hmm. closer to where Cape Point is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's obviously a massive baboon colony. Oh, um, yeah, I heard, yeah, I've heard about that. So <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the clips from years ago um, where they got so clever, where yeah. uh, people hiking and walking into the in the mountains when they return. The baboons picked up on the fact that um, cars, when they see the lights, so when you press your remote to open the doors and they see the lights and the noise, they understand that the doors are unlocked. So there was clips of actually people coming to their cars, unlocking, because that's usually what we do, isn't it? Yeah. On the way to the car, you open the car. And as soon as people open the car, these baboons rush to the car, open the doors, and oh they just start ripping and taking whatever food is inside. So sometimes, I guess, you know... Um, it's um, you know it it could be in a degree where you find yourself in a position where now wh- you know what's going to happen now now you need to find a way to separate us from the baboons you know True, yeah. for for cir- security mm-hmm. for both of them yeah. um, so sometimes it's a little bit close to home yeah uh, yeah that's true but n- nonetheless you know it's um, that's what I've realized on the way here um, yesterday is where we stay when you've we've mm-hmm. you've been up uh, for the last two months. There's so much movement next to the road. There's so much. Yeah. Uh, what's these uh, long um, little? Uh, looks like not a squirrel. It's a uh, mongoose. Mongoose. Yeah, yeah. Mongoose. A lot yeah. of mongoose. A lot of turtles. Yeah. A lot of and the small little dikers and yeah. uh, springbokies, uh, antelope. Um, and th- when you get close to Cape Town, you know, although like you said, we are blessed because mm. that we still have kind of that blend of uh, mm-hmm. nature and, and civilization, yet you know. Only in this kilometer, you see the difference where you don't, obviously, and it's for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have those smaller little um, animals yeah. that tends to be part of our canvas mm-hmm. up that side, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, and that's also what we had now in the Transkai. Since we last spoke, remember I told you that we're going to do that six-day hike um, yeah. up in the Transkai. Yeah. And, you know, that's what you get in that side. You walk through the villages, you walk into the forest, mm-hmm. and everything is intertwined, you know. The, oh, the yeah. cattle is walking in the roads and uh, the pigs are in the forest and everything is just, everyone loves it and, you know, in That's unity. amazing, yeah. So it's, um, obviously it won't work in a big city, yeah. but um, it's still nice to kind of go back to places like this where everyone exactly. is kind of, you know, yeah. uh, just giving each other space to kind of do it that Totally, and I, enjoy, I will miss those days in Veldrift that you I was waken up by the bird sound outside mm. in the morning, like when the sun rises, yeah. all the birds, like the, IBCs or or the Egyptian goose, yeah. Oh, they're making all these noises in the morning. No, no, no noise. I, I really enjoy them. Yeah, it's yeah. to wake up naturally. It's so sure. beautiful feeling. The the other thing is you're missing the the fishing season. The fishing season is starting mm. like a month from now. So oh, uh, God, of course. Yeah, exactly. So you'll have to next time you're back, you'll have to make sure that you have yeah. you're here for the fishing season as well. Exactly. I mean, this is just kind of uh, 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 what is the word? Almost like a scouting uh, yes season yes. for you. But hopefully, we'll establish longer. Uh, uh, monitoring here. Sure. So hopefully we'll see most of these yeah. the things you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the people that you would uh, end up bringing back, is this students that will also only focus on the plover or is this students that focuses on, on salt or on um, seagulls or whatever the case might be? Uh, yeah, I mean, like uh, we have this kind of framework, but, but, but mostly we're focusing on shorebirds. That's what I do. Mm. But our group is also, you know, they look into other different species as well, like uh, amphibians or... Or like mammals or fish, yeah, we, we do a lot of things. But as long w- w- it should be developed uh, according to the students' attitude, you know, yeah. how they w- what do they really enjoy. But we are uh, like trying to establish this kind of world collaborations, the helping, uh, like the local conservation, but also I- uh, involving uh, as many students as possible, like from South Africa or from different parts of the world. Yeah. So, but I mean, the final goal we're trying to achieve is, you know, it's always conservation. Sure. No matter what we do, is like behavior study or a genetic study. Yeah. But after all, it's all for conservation purposes. Yeah. Actually, yeah. talk about conservation. Did mm. you get the, the email from uh, Suncorp um, a few days ago? And what was it? Let me mm. quickly see if I... Uh, I received an email from mm. them. Um, it was the 13th of October. Uh, Suncorp press release, avian influenza affects colonies of endangered Cape Comorants. Ooh. A serious outbreak of high... serious outbreak of avian influenza, HPAI, mm-hmm. is currently mm-hmm. affecting endangered Cape Comorants along the we- uh, coast of the Western Cape. In the worst affected colonies, hundreds of birds have been died from the disease. It's in a highly contagious viral disease of um, of birds with no curative or preventative treatment. 
and then you know everyone is working together to try and um, help these colonies. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been affected the worst to um, on those on Dyer Island and near Felderif. Careful surveillance mm -hmm. is being done wherever Cape Comorans congregate, which is, like we said, we've got a hundred thousand of them. Um. Yeah, actually, that's the kind of overlap with my research because, mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, I, I studied like behavioral of these shorebirds, for example, like social behaviors, like how they interact with one another, like when it, when it comes to breeding season. So you know, like, uh, it has a great implication uh, in terms of uh, disease transmission, like bir bird flu. Because you know, like the, these airborne disease, they they uh, they kind of uh, transmit it when the two individuals having, let's say, sexual con contact yeah. or some other sort of uh, social contact. So if we know the patterns of uh, like the social contact patterns of these species, then we will know we can predict the transmission pattern of some certain sp uh, disease. Mm. So I mean, with that, we can come up with a, a reliable. Uh, solution to right. control the disease transmission. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that overlap. Uh, as I said, it's uh, eventually all for conservation, eventually yeah. for the better survival of the, the wild populations. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, um, it's again, it, 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 it needs kind of um, um, proactive input from, from, yeah. from us as people, yeah. you know, to try and help, um, might be the birds or whatever the case might be, especially when there's an outbreak like this where, mm -hmm. you know, I don't. G yeah. I guess. Uh, I assume. You know. Uh, I don't know if it's kind of so like some like humans, where you, where some of them have like a natural um, um, way of kind of fighting these um, yeah, viral I diseases. Mean, or not. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Still, like a lot of things can be done, and we. I mean, is there, I really, I really don't know about that. Yeah. But uh, for sure, there will be a lot of bird. You know, died and. Yeah, because yeah. I mean. Um, um, there was an outbreak of something a few years ago. I mean, usually you find these outbreaks with um, with with um, farming animals like cattle or mm -hmm. sheep or mm -hmm. pigs, especially. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, the, for us, unfortunately, um, up the west coast, you'll find uh, um, whenever there's a lot of seals mm -hmm. um, on the beach or birds. Actually, funny enough, now that I think about it, the last two weeks ago, there was a, a, a inf. Um, there was more bir dead birds on the beach than than normal. Yeah, normally. yeah. So that could be um, the, the, the related to to something could like be, this. Yeah. Um, is there any of those plovers or any birds um, that you kind of saw or, um, that you studied that is um, that can change sex? Uh, uh no, not in birds. Not I, in I don't birds. think so. No, no. no. Uh, well, not in plovers at least. <laughs> yeah. So birds, yeah. birds as well. Mm. Um, yeah, because that's obviously something that, with my his, my background in mm. underwater, underwater, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's something that you get to see quite a lot. You know, yeah. with, with eels, with clownfish, with rats, yeah. um, with seagulls. Um, because usually, what happens is, as even bullfish like sailfish, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. marlin, mm -hmm. um, you know, can also um, um, change sex. And um, that's something that that when we spoke about, we spoke about something quite interesting that I'm going to ask you now. But that reminded me of the the marlins. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as soon as they they get born in uh, being a male, and then at two fifty when mm -hmm. they mature, mm -hmm. they s they kind of move over to being a female, mm -hmm. and then move over. So um, you mentioned something when we spoke the first time, which was incredibly interesting to me, yeah, yeah. and that is the eagle hunting. Yeah, of course. Back yeah. in Kazakhstan. Uh -huh. So. Uh, where I mean, obviously, this is this is I'm sure this is something that goes back centuries. Mm -hmm. But um, you've mentioned the fact that eagle um, after seven years, mm -hmm. when the eagle matures, um, you get you get to set the, the bird free, and yeah. it, it then it gets to you know do its thing. Um, firstly, how is this something that you you had the opportunity to partake in or, or, or observe or mm -hmm. experience, um, you know, training or raising? Um, yeah, I mean, this whole culture, like uh, eagle hunting cultural thing, is not only in in Kazakhstan but also it's uh, prevailing. Was once prevailed in uh, Central Asia, across Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and the Western China, and also Mongolia. All these like nomadic. Yeah. Uh, group of peoples, but I mean, uh, in in a past decades, this kind of culture is disappearing really fast. But I was really lucky because my my, my grandpa used to be a uh, one of, like living one of these nomadic lifestyles, living in a yurt and having uh, a lot of sheep and cows. So I spent pretty much every summer when I was a kid with my grandma uh, grandpa in his farm, uh, on his farm. So yeah, like uh, uh, not my grand grandpa. I remember, as far as I remember, when I was very small, my grandpa used to have one of these eagles, but I was too young to remember that, that part of uh, 
my life. But I did remember that uh, one of our neighbor living on a on the other side of the hill, yeah, he was one of these eagle hunters, and uh, I managed to take a picture of uh, of uh, eagle hunting with uh, uh, like uh, with this golden eagle, yeah. and that's when I learned a little thing, little something about eagle hunting in, in that part of. Uh, uh, China, like Western Western yeah. China, Xinjiang province. Uh, I mean, that was I think it's early two thousand or late nineteen nineties. Uh, but back then, you know, eagle hunting is mostly for uh, for hunting the furs and food for people. I see. But now it kind of already converted into some tourism attractions. Mm. Like in Kazakhstan, you will see if you travel to Kazakhstan, you will see uh, people actually holding a golden, golden eagle or, or sometimes a vulture it's not even a yeah you know yeah. <laughs> just trying to attract the the tourists but um, it's sad i mean but it's the, the one good thing is like in mongolia that's what i uh saw from those documentaries at last eagle huntress or eagle hunters there's a lot of the bbc and, and uh, some other really nice interesting documents about eagle hunting yeah so this kind of uh, thing is actually prevailing as it's getting better in mongolia that the kazakh people over there they're trying to maintain this culture to next generation so which is good yeah. but it's not a it's not a on a big scale to keep the whole or preserve the culture continuing for next generation so it's kind of sad but um because a lot of people just start living in a, in, in a city and yeah. they, they receive education and this kind of lifestyle will, i don't think will last very long to yeah. be honest when 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 uh when one decides to to i mean mm. let's just go back to your grandfather's um, mm. um era but when one decides to to go to um, you know catch or, or mm-hmm. find an egg, is this something that is it's like a rite of passage, or is this something that you you have to do because of this the environment and the circumstance that you grow up in, or is this something that you can decide? Well, you know, at that I'm going to be an eagle hunter, and then you go out and uh, catch your catch your find. I think it could be all. <laughs> 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 could be all, yeah. But I mean, I mean, in in this person's case, like my, our neighbor, uh, he's uh, he was like a bird lover. For uh, to be honest, he he has been a hunter for like um, most of his life, and yeah. also he's really into uh, eagles and uh, all these uh, bird of prey. Yeah. So I remember he uh, he was actually having I don't know two three eagles at the same time. Uh, so what they usually do is like they look for the nest on the cliff because that's where they usually yeah. lay the eggs, and they look for the uh, the hatchlings. So they t- took them home, but they you have to treat the eagle like your own baby. That's yeah. very important. You, you you build the trust, the relationship. Exactly. You feed them. You feed them. You take care of them, and also you train them. So it's it's a really long term uh, like commitment. Exactly. Like like it's one of your pets, p- probably your yeah. family member. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, up to like couple of years, and you have to start training the bird uh, how to how to catch a prey. For example, mostly it's a, it's a, like fox, mm. sometimes wolves, and uh, mostly like rabbits for for the fur and for the meat and kind of thing. But up to let's say five, six, seven years, uh, it's a, it's an obligation that you have to return the bird to back to nature because they need to reproduce. They need to enjoy being a wild. Sure. Eagle. So I think that's the whole idea and the uh, of of uh, bird hunting is like the the bird help you uh, to improve your life, but as a return uh, as a, like to return the favor, you have to set them free yeah, again. The Otherwise, you cannot really owe this bird for the rest sure. of your life. How yeah. old does these uh, golden eagles get? I mean, I think usually fifteen <coughs> to twenty years, something like that. But uh, usually, uh, after five six years, uh, the eagle hunters would release them yeah. back to the nature. And is um, size-wise or mm-hmm. weight-wise, mm-hmm. uh, is the golden eagle the biggest? Or yeah, one of the biggest. Yeah, yeah. one of the biggest uh, uh, eagles. And I think that sometimes the, poof, I remember once I was, yeah, uh, in, in this place holding the uh, the eagle on my arm. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I was just too weak to hold it. <laughs> totally. I mean, like after a few seconds, I I can't I couldn't really hold it any much yeah. longer. That's why you know they, they always have this crotch. I see. Uh, to support your arm, yeah. like when where the eagle can sit on your yeah. uh, stand on your on your arm. Do do you, do you guys do like uh, eagle racing as well? Because obviously, mm-hmm. in Africa, well, I'm sure many many parts mm-hmm. of the world, but obviously you got pigeon racing and um, you know I don't know. Mm-hmm. Not, like even not that I know of. of. <laughs> yeah, because I'm. I just assume. Uh, just assume that you know, trying to preserve this this um, sport. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's a sport or lifestyle mm-hmm. of hunting with eagles. Um, you know, and like you said, it's slowly dying out. That a way to try and pr- 
preserve it mm-hmm. is to kind of slightly adapt mm-hmm. the idea of using the eagle to hunt, mm-hmm. but instead of u- using an eagle for something else, but mm-hmm. still having that relationship and still sitting the eagle free afterwards. Uh, because I'm like you said now, most a lot of people move to the city or move to the mm-hmm. to the town or whatever. So the idea of of catching food is not. Uh, necessi- uh, Purpose, uh, yeah. uh, necessary anymore, mm-hmm. but yet the the um, income mm-hmm. from you know promoting this this tourism activity, I would say, I don't know if it, for lack of a better word, uh, could obviously still be something that's um, yeah, many still people. a good, good idea. I, I I'm not sure if somebody has already doing something like that, but uh, it's definitely one one of the sustainable ways to keep the culture yeah for next generation. But I mean, it's a really sad to see. Like if this kind of eagle hunting culture vanished, I mean, in the next decades or something. Yeah. But also, I mean, uh, you know, those nomadic families that you mm-hmm. were talking of, um, even your grandfather, mm-hmm. and them, they also have got that relationship with, with the horses. Yeah. That seems, yeah. You know, because obviously, you know, you need the horse and you need the, oh, well, I'm assuming you go from horseback. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Age of five. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, riding into battle with on a horse with the, with the eagle on the arm, you know, with crazy. probably there was some I don't know wolf jacket or, or be- I don't yeah, know what like like yeah fur jacket yeah, yeah whatever fur you've got yeah. uh, you know it must be quite a sight to be able to observe um, you know these um, tribes mm-hmm. or these individuals um, mm-hmm. you know going into the mountain and is this is this um, hunting the food that you get from this this is for feeding the the, the family or the humans or uh, usually like for fox it's uh, for the fur because they use the fox fur to make the coat yeah. and make a lot of things. And because uh, I mean they don't usually eat uh, it f- uh, like fox meat, no, I see. mostly for the furs. Yeah. But for food, sometimes like like rabbit, probably uh, mm. depending on. Oh, but well, well, I mean back in those days, food wasn't that that bad. But mostly it's for yeah. fur. But maybe like m- even like long time ago, 1950s or even longer, probably mm. you know rabbit meat or, yeah. But uh, at least the the time when I was experiencing uh, experiencing experiencing the uh, eagle hunting is mo- mostly for the fur. I see. Yeah. And it's a uh, is the is the gold eagle protected in um, as um, in that part of the world or is yes it yes I mean uh, I think this population is okay I, I wouldn't say like yeah. thriving but it's still yeah it's what okay. what's the what's the the national bird of Kazakhstan do you know. Oh, uh, maybe I don't. I'm not sure. It could be eagle because I I know the eagle is on on their national flag. Well, it probably could be then yeah. uh, something. Gold, golden like eagle, yeah. Um, yeah, because I was speaking to someone in um, in Sweden, mm-hmm. and it was interesting. Um, I think Sweden or Norway, they've got something not very badass. Mm-hmm. It's like the swan or something. So it's cute. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's not. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's not an eagle. Yeah. Since I get the education mostly in China, so uh, but I do know that you know the national birds of ch- of China, which is uh, well, it's actually quite controversial because still people are debating because uh, they thought uh, you know the crane should yeah. be um, a national bird, but you know the Latin names of crane is Japanese, which means Japanese. Oh, so really? due to the like uh, this historical mm. issues between Chinese and yeah, Japanese, yeah. Uh, they thought it might not be very prop- appropriate to have yeah. a crane as national bird. But also they are having a like a proposition saying uh, the f- golden pheasant could be a, a national bird. So yeah. I mean, like still people are arguing about that. Interesting. Yeah, I think in, I think in South Africa it's the blue crane. Oh yeah, I've seen a couple of, like several pairs. Yeah, yeah. I think in I the meadow, national bird is the blue crane. Very graceful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you know, because you've got national bird, national uh, flower, national mm. fish, national animal. Uh, what's the other thing that you've got? Um, uh, I think many people. Mammal. <laughs> well, I, th- I, I think most people yeah. don't even know their national anything. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but I mean, South Africa is so rich in di- biodiversity. Yeah, especially especially the the uh, underwater life. You know, because yeah. we've got the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic kind of mm-hmm. meeting. Um, well, up in um, Capagalas. Yeah. Um, we have the, you know, we've got two oceans com- uh, meeting. So you've got such a diverse amount of underwater fish. Because yep. m- when most people dive or scuba dive, you would you um, you tend to imagine warm, clear, crystal water like yeah. Mozambique or something, and um, all these colorful fish, you know, like we have in Sedona Bay. Mm-hmm. But diving in in Cape Town, uh, sp- even in the Atlantic side. You've you've got all these beautiful uh, anemones, and you've got the kelp lands, um, mm-hmm. and you've got so much more beautiful silverfish. All the fish that I grew up um, catching and eating, you get to see experience them in their natural environment, swimming. So um, for me, that's beautiful again because I spent you know all my dives and time 
living and and working in places where it's tropical mm. and beautiful yeah. you know so uh, you get to you, you get to enjoy all those colorful fish but sometimes it's it's even nicer to see the dull dark cold waters of, of cape town you know because there's so much beauty hidden yeah underneath all of that nonsense totally actually yesterday i went to visit the, the one of these aquariums in cape town city the two oceans the two oceans yeah yeah it's i mean that's just something i don't want to miss because uh yeah, that, as you said, like uh, this, this part is all totally overlooked by many people. But I went there, I see the one of these, uh, my favorite fish, uh, blue tang. Ah, the blue tang. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. totally overexploited because of you know they're you know they're just beautiful. People yeah, keep them yeah. for a lot of reasons, and I managed to see one. I was like, oh, this feeling so the, great. The blue tang is as you come in the first room. Yes, I think it's the blue yes, tang. yes. There's, I think I only saw one of them, like yeah. only one. Yeah. Like I just have following around the bird, like, uh, no, no, the fish trying to take a video. Yeah, because that's one of my favorite fish. Yeah, the blue tanks. Um, actually, all of those reef fish. Mm. Um, you know, even the rats. When I was mm. um, l- working in the Red Sea, we had these massive rats that used to kind of. Uh, what they do is they kind of swim very slowly over mm-hmm. the sand, and then they kind of look for s- for food underneath. Mm. So what we used to do is kind of just ruffle up the sand a bit, sit on your knees, ruffle up the sand, and then the, some of these rats got so used to the divers that they'll swim underneath you, and you can oh. actually like you know stroke them, and they'll come around. But what I, obviously I don't promote um, you know mm-hmm. touching or um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or playing with 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 fish. But what happened is um, when I was living in the north in Sadwana Bay, uh, we have um, mass fish. I think they mm. protected as well. It's called a potato bass. So it's okay. quite a big bass got these um and they tend to uh, they can kind of adjust their um their color so they can go from a quite a whitish color yeah to kind of darker and they've got these spots on them anyway and they can get quite big and i took a, a group of divers down to 14 meters there was this reef in the middle of a of the sand yeah and um we were at about 12 meters and i was just drifting uh, hovering in midwater checking up on all my divers and out of nowhere this massive rest just came swimming past me <sighs> and he turned around and he stopped right in front of me. And on the side, he had uh, a hulker, which is like an artificial lure. Uh-huh. So the cable um, was through his mouth, through his gill oh plate. God, okay. And then the hulker or the lure was stuck between his fin and his gill plate. Oh, gosh. And it was almost, it parked right in front mm-hmm. of me. And it like looked at me. And it was almost as if it's asking me, like, just pull this shit out of me, please. You like, did. Yeah, so I, what I did is, as I touched the, the hook, because it's got treble hooks, so it's got three right. hooks, oh, and it's okay. got two of these, and both of them is going to kind of, you know, latch mm. into, into the, the side of the fish. So as I tried to pull on it, I, um, obviously, I, I assume I hurt the fish, or I scared it off, and it kind of swam away. And then it came back again. But then I saw that it's been in its mouth for a little bit too long. So it kind of um, it kind of grew into the skin. Mm-hmm. So I realized that if I want to pull this thing out, I'll have to do it quite abruptly. Yeah. And uh, what happened is as I kind of got hold of the hook and I ripped, the fish just flew away. And the hook got stuck into my thumb. Oh. So... I had, I was, this thing was pulling me through the water. Luckily, I was in scuba, you know, so I had Mm -hmm. a tank on my back. But the shock um, was so much that I didn't feel anything, obviously. So the fish went like left and went right, left, right, left, right. And then eventually, like, it went to the left hand side, and my thumb, on on some lucky way, it it kind of ripped out of the, um, the hook. And, um, you know, that's that was an instance where you try to go, do good, you know, but, but it doesn't uh, really, didn't really go too well. Yeah, I mean, I run into this kind of situation as well. So, I mean, the, the, the best thing is to avoid this kind of thing from happening from the first place. Exactly. You know, like you can actually, using a different type of hook, mm. at least that will yeah. save a lot of unnecessary casualty yeah. to the, you know, like, like, a, like a turtles or, yeah. or sharks, as you yeah. say. Yeah, bo- yeah. Uh, unbarbed hooks um, yeah. is usually, you know, what, yeah. what many people tend to use um, if you try, if you, if you consciously not try yeah. to to hurt the fish and to be able to release it. Um, yeah, uh, that's actually one one of the part of the aquarium I really like the most because it has really st- like a one section like emphasizing the ocean pollution, all this plastic, mm-hmm. like microplastic, all these bottles and uh, how they are impacting the those species. Yeah, but you've seen this video a lot, like this, the, like one straw when it went yeah, right into a no, turtle's nose. Nostril. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, horrible. Just, yeah, I mean, just yeah. try to avoid these things happening from the first place would be the best. Yeah, the, the problem is it's when um, 
there's a dive site in Thailand. Mm. Um, so from Phuket, there you go. It's mm-hmm. like an hour and a half or whatever with the ferry to Koh Phi Phi. And then from Koh Phi Phi, you get onto a speedboat. And mm-hmm. then on the speedboat, it's a three-hour drive into mm-hmm. the Andaman Sea and mm-hmm. th- with nothing and no one around you. You can't see land. Yeah. And in the middle of nowhere, you've got these two pinnacles. Um, uh, uh, f- what's the names of them? Um, anyway, not yeah. important. Um, so on low tide, one of the pinnacles just breaks the surface. And that's how you man- you get to yeah. find the, the dive site if you don't have a um, yeah, yeah. Uh, GPS. So anyway, so it's two pinnacles. They go down to around 35 meters, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful spot to be able to see um, pelagic fish and um, whale sharks and so on. So I had the opportunity to see one of the biggest whale sharks I've ever seen. Um, but besides the point, um, on the way there, we stopped just for a quick um, um, pit stop or whatever. And there was this, it was like an island. And as far as you can see, it was plastic and rubber. Uh, drifting and a lot of it was um, sh- um, sandals, mm-hmm. rubber sandals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, light bulbs from all the choker boats. Uh, um, you know, using the lights to attract the choker to the top, yeah, yeah. and then uh, plastic. You know, of and on all and then dr- uh, logs and trees and stuff. So all of these things have kind of latched onto each other, and yeah. there's li- it's so it's so like high you can literally climb off the boat on top stand on top of this and yeah. you, you won't go down it's incredible it's I mean, these, these are like visible pollution but yeah the, if, you, if you if you like uh there's also invisible pollutions as well like microplastics yeah like you can only find the them in, in their gust and you know like uh, some some bird or some some fish die and then you open them and you see all these yeah but i mean like that's the one thing that people sometimes misunderstood that uh you know you, if you go a place go to a place with the, like nice forest nice ecological surrounding but you know that's what you see yeah you actually probably sometimes you, you don't really see the underlying crisis i see so yeah i mean but at least we should start with those visible pollution first yeah yeah, yeah. there was actually an interesting start uh, i think it was a study a few years ago where they they kind of focused on um on um inse- insecticides and pesticides used uh-huh. on farms uh-huh. and oh yeah around the equator uh, all the farming that's around the world that's ha- that happens around the equator, mm-hmm. um, these airborne pesticides and herbicides get drawn to the south and to the North Pole, and mm. because the North Pole has you know um, Inuits and people living there, um, they actually tested them their blood um, for these pesticides and herbicides, and mm. they realized that these guys living in the middle of nowhere, um, minding their own business, actually have. I don't know how many million parts, but whatever, more than yeah. the average person living in amongst the farming communities. Yeah, 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 it's, totally. It's, it's like a, like a accumulation throughout the food chain. Exactly, yeah. it's the same yeah. like uh, you know, like tuna. Yeah, know, yeah. They're, they're such big fish, but because of all the uh, consumption of small fish, mm. the amount of mercury within tuna is, is obviously quite high, high because yeah. of the diets that they follow. Yeah. So um, yeah, sometimes you know, like, and that's what that goes back to what you said earlier. Is mm-hmm. it's sometimes better or easier or cheaper mm-hmm. to try and prevent things from the beginning yeah. instead of trying to you know yeah. wait until it's fucking uh, um, yeah. extinct yeah. and then listen to the bird sound on youtube you know rather yeah, go and exactly. find it in the in the jungle or whatever and listen and um, you know experience and enjoy it totally uh, as a living or a being yeah i mean yeah. <laughs> just well it's just like the south africa <laughs> yeah so uh, but yeah sorry yeah. I, I went all completely off topic. Yeah, so the the aquarium is definitely one of my favorite places yeah. to go and just chill out. I mean, this is you're so lucky you can actually see those things real in the wild. I mean, yeah, you dive yeah. and apparently I'm I'm not really skillful or, or in any of kind of like those water activities. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I I wish I could learn to scuba diving at some point, but to yeah, see l- luckily in in Cape Town uh, besides the shark tank. Um, mm. And I would say, but besides all the the, the colorful reef fishes mm-hmm. that you get to the uh, that you get to see in the first mm-hmm. room, because mm-hmm. that you'll find up. The more you go up the east coast, yeah. the the higher the possibility of seeing them. But the rest of it, many of those um, fish species, you'll be able to see free diving. You know, at Cape Point, <sighs> um, that's the beauty of it. It's it's not species that's only kind of. Uh, um, that you need specialized equipment mm-hmm. or you need to go, f- you know, pay a bunch of money yeah. for company to go and show yeah. you. You can literally see these things in within under five, ten meters of water. Yeah, uh, that's the list for next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
that's definitely obviously like i said it's uh the 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 aquarium is um especially the tank across from the shark tank mm -hmm. where they've got the Khalyun, which is our national fish and they've got the stompnes and the stembras and i don't know if there's cop or something but that tank is my favorite due to the fact that that tank is as if you had to t take that and you put it in the ocean that's exactly what, what it's it like, like uh, you know, and that's amazing. what you'll find on a normal free dive or dive at least you know um yeah. So yeah, it's um. That's very tempting. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you are on the way out out of the country. Yeah. Uh, which what, what what of the little bit? Obviously, you spent quite a lot of time studying. Um, of the little bit that you got to experience, mm -hmm. um, within your studies, mm -hmm. what was the most favorite part of the the experience living up the west coast? Oh, I think th there's a lot to be honest. I mean, for me, it's totally like something totally new in in my life so far. I mean, it's hard to say which one, uh, which one I, I love the most, but uh, I just have to say nature, of course. I mean, this whole landscape of the West Coast, because I, I, I met this really nice birder when I was in the salt pan. Uh, he actually was, he's a really nice person. He showed me around the West Coast, including St. Helena's Bay, oh, beautiful, Jacob's yeah. Bay, and all these, like, coastline. Mm. I just, I mean, breathtaking, honestly, and... Uh, it's not about the nature, of course, and also the people here is just uh, super friendly, and uh, they tell me a lot of stories about what they have seen and uh, uh, what the life is like in there. And also, I also experienced different lifestyle in in Feldrift, like yeah. those uh, those fish fishermen. Yeah, it strikes me as people here don't really work, but uh, <laughs> actually they're working, but in a different way. Sure. Yeah. But it's just another thing that I experienced for the first time of my life. So, I mean, it's a very limited time, to be yeah. honest, to explore yeah. the uh, different elements. But for sure, uh, hopefully I can return next year and uh, I I get all these uh, basic experiences and I can explore something more on top of it. Sure. And, of course, people like you, it's a very lucky to, you know, run into you in, in that cafe and then yeah. talk about a lot of things. And you also to to told me about, you know, the, the tortoise uh, in the, in that area as well, yeah. so I explored the the, the river band to see those tortoises. Really cool, really yeah. cool. Yeah, it's um, obviously. Did you manage to to taste bokum, the little dried fish? Oh no no no! Uh, Listen, I, I mean, probably I, I did by mistake, but uh, I mean, I, I had this kind of problem to understand, you know, these uh, local yeah African. So then I'm words. going to I'm going to keep it uh, against you for next time when I see you when you're back yeah. here again. Um, I'm going to force you. I'm going to force it down your throat. <laughs> but I definitely had a lot of fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that, you know, we tend to have uh, up the West Coast is yeah. uh, abundance of, uh, you know, fresh fish. Oh, totally. So, um, so listen, man, thanks so much for, for coming in oh, to Cape thank Town. Thank you for having um, me. To meet me. Um, all the best with your studies. Um, and, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to see you back up in uh, the West Coast yeah, I'll definitely next you know. year, whatever the case <laughs> might be. And, um, yeah. Thanks for thanks for everything. Appreciate it. Thanks man. Cheers man.